we're kind of coming in to the middle of a story here in 2 Samuel 12. And this is the other half of a tough story that I like better than the first half. Because the first half, chapter 11, we see David getting himself into an unsolvable mess. He quit doing his job as king. He sinned against God by coveting another man's wife. And he slept with her. And he covered it up. And he worked things to get her husband killed in battle. Now David's solution to his sin is very familiar to all of us. And that is, cover it up and run away from God. That's the only way we really know how to deal with sin. Because if I face God in my sin, he's going to kill me. And we can't have that. But this chapter is not about God killing David. It's about God restoring David to himself. And we're going to look at how God restores a guilty sinner. And it's interesting because it's the exact same way that he restores you and me when we sin and crash and burn and blow it big time. He restores in grace. And we get to look at how you define the word grace this morning. So I'm reading here in 2 Samuel 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his, with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man. He refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, 
I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, by, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the, children, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. So first of all, we see here that God confronts David. David has been avoiding God for up to a year and a half. Hasn't made a move toward God. Outwardly, he looks fine. He's doing great. How are you this morning, sire? I'm fine. And he's doing his job. But as we read in Psalm 32 earlier, he says, when I didn't say anything about my sin, I was wasting away. I was groaning. I was dried out. I was empty. It was the worst time in his life. Inwardly, he was dying. And though he knew that God's hand was heavy on him, he did not go to God. He avoided God continually, and he would have kept doing that if God had not intervened. He was stuck. Have you ever felt stuck? in your sin and helpless. This is a common phenomenon. We can't deal with the sin in our lives. If we could, there would be no reason for God to save us. So here's grace in action. God is making the first move toward David. And this helps to define the word grace. God is the one who is offended. It was God's rules that were broken. David is the offender. And yet God is really coming to him first. So he breaks the silence. 
that was going to destroy David. And what he does is he sends Nathan, the prophet, to expose David's sin. Can you imagine? God gets a hold of Nathan and says, this is what David did, and now I want you to go and confront him. David could kill him if David is not open to this. But Nathan goes anyway, and he tells David this story. A poor man has a pet lamb that's like a daughter, eats off his plate, drinks out of his cup, it's like a daughter. And this rich man who has all these flocks and herds doesn't want to give up any of his. He's so greedy. So he takes this little pet lamb and he kills it and he cooks it and he eats it. And David is shocked. Now this is David's own situation. And when David hears it, slightly disguised, he goes, that guy is despicable. That guy has no compassion. He should die. He's going to pay back fourfold for that lamb that he stole because that's the law of Moses. If you steal sheep, you pay four times back. So David has judged correctly. And then Nathan sort of hits him over the head with the two by four from heaven. Pow! You are that man. And he lets David know that God saw everything. And he knew everything. And you just got to see the irony in everything that Nathan says to David because God lists how he benefited David and blessed him and gave him this and that. And here's the kingdom. And here's everything. And then he says, you know, if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you much more. Here's God ready and willing to satisfy a person's heart completely. And when David gets it in his head, oh man, that would be satisfying. Turns out to be a complete mess. So here's God, ready and willing to satisfy completely. And David misses all that and goes after something that's going to wreck his life. Satisfying ourselves is never going to work. He says, you decided what would satisfy you, and you have wrecked your life, and you have wrecked other people's lives around you. So here's David's sin laid bare and open. And God pronounces Judgment. And there are four judgments. Remember that if you steal a sheep, you repay fourfold. So look what he says now. In verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. You will experience conflict and bereavement 
in your family continually. Then he says, in verse 11, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Not only will that happen to his family, but David's own family is going to have conflict. David will experience this attack from somebody in his own family. Then he says, thirdly, I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor. He's going to lie with them right in the sun, openly. You did this secretly. I'm going to do this in front of all Israel. And then the fourth, he says in verse 14, Indeed, you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who was born to you shall surely die. So, occasion to blaspheme the Lord. So, the Lord is good, and here's this representative of God, and boy, he does anything he wants. And it's an occasion to blaspheme God. How can you have a guy like this working for you? And God says, you know, this is a righteous judgment. So this is pretty devastating, isn't it? This would be like the reason we wouldn't want to show up before God. But you notice verse 13 here, in the midst of judgment, God shows amazing grace. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is where David breaks. And he confesses, I have sinned. Now, God knew about it. Nathan knew about it. And yet David <coughs> comes out with it. And this is a turning point. He confesses. Now that means to agree with. And David is agreeing with God here. He's sort of taking his own side against himself as being on God's side. He says, I have sinned. And he's agreeing. So right there, in that place where David kind of lets down the defense, he's not putting any spin on it, saying, well, it's her fault and his fault and all this thing and it happened and I just didn't. And He's just saying, okay. And he expects to die. This is where Nathan stops pronouncing judgment and says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Everything that David did was a capital offense against God. Coveting, adultery, murder, and lying. Four, 
punishable by death. That's what the law of Moses demands. That is the penalty. But God says, I've taken away your sin. You're not going to die. How do you think David felt in that moment? Receiving what he does not deserve. That is a definition of grace. And what that means is the Lord is disciplining David. It's not punishment. Um, With the guys that I've been working with, teaching how to study and teach the Bible, and also on Friday night, it's interesting how this keeps coming up. The difference between punishment and discipline. Because one of the gentlemen was reading in the dictionary the definition of discipline and it came to punishment. And he goes, discipline is punishment. Now the section of the Bible that we're in is where uh, it's Hebrews 12, And the writer is encouraging his readers to receive the discipline of God because that's what parents do to their children, because they love their children. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord and don't faint when you're reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And the point is, God is dealing with you As with sons, what parent has a son that he doesn't discipline? And if you're without discipline, of which all have partaken, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So this fellow read down to punishment and goes, wow, punishment. Discipline is punishment. But the definition right underneath that was training to shape and mold the character. And that is what a parent does. A parent doesn't deliver retribution. Kid, I am now going to send you to the moon without a rocket. Pow. That's not discipline. That's not a stressed parent popping a fuse and deciding because he's had a lousy day at work. I'm going to take it out on the kid. Uh -uh. Discipline is, you know what, kid? This is never going to fly, and I have to show you this so that you will learn that your actions are never going to be acceptable, and you will act in a way that will ensure that you live a long time. That's because I love you. Now, if God were to punish, if God were to deliver the penalty of the law of Moses, David would die forever. Does everybody get that? Whatever else God is doing here, it is not punishment. But discipline is punishment with a view toward correction, which means God does not want to kill David. 
But he wants David to be shaped and molded in his moral character so that he shares God's holiness. Because it says in Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So God wants David to live. And in this important way, God is going to humble David and to keep David close to God, not to be independent. Because being independent is how he got into trouble. God says, I don't want you over there. I want you right here. And I'm going to keep you close to me. And these things are difficult that God has said, isn't it? You hear all four things and you go, oh, oh, ah, oh. And you think, man, this is harsh. And yet, this is the thing that will keep David dependent upon God. If you have to bear these things, how do you bear them? And that is you go to God and you say, help. Will God help you through his own discipline? Yes. Absolutely, you're not on your own. You're with him. So the purpose for discipline is not to destroy. It's to humble and to teach. And that's why when David's child becomes sick, he submits to God. Look in verse 16. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, 
but he shall not return to me. Now this is the first part of the discipline of the Lord that God said was gonna happen. And this child becomes sick and David begins to fast for him and pray for him. And his elders come to him and say, you gotta get up and eat. He goes, no, I'm praying. Leave me alone. And for seven days, he is on the floor praying to God. And then seven days of this, and he sees his servants kind of going. And David goes, is he dead? And they go, yeah. He goes, okay. Gets up and he goes ahead and cleans up. Goes into the temple. Uh, the tabernacle of the Lord and worships just like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he goes in and says, I'd like to eat now. Now this is not what you do when somebody dies. When somebody dies, you're supposed to lose it and grieve and mourn and fast and weep and not eat. And David is doing the exact opposite. And his servants are going, what is this? Why are you doing this? And see, David is explaining himself. He's submitting to that discipline of the Lord. He's not saying, you took my child. I hate your guts. He is acknowledging that the Lord is right in everything that he does. Because see, there was a possibility while that child was still alive that God would relent and be gracious. Who knows, does David deserve it? No, but that's grace. If you deserved it, it would be something that God owes you because you did something for God and God owes nobody. He doesn't have to do anything for anybody. So David is just asking. But see, when the child died, he didn't flip clean out because that's what God said would happen. And so he knows you don't fight against God. He did that for over a year and a half, and he's done with that. He is super done with staying away from God and resisting him. He'd rather submit and be at peace. So he submits to this chastening of the Lord. And then look at verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now you wonder, 
what Bathsheba has been thinking in all this. Because we've been looking at it from David's point of view. Wow, she's fabulous. I want to sleep with her. What did she think? Did she have any children? Is this child that died her first? So how do you be intimate with somebody who kind of barged into your marriage and blew it up and killed your husband, married you to cover up, but then the child dies? What kind of a relationship do you have with this guy? How do you be intimate with him? And the answer is, this is another miracle of grace. Because it says David comforted Bathsheba with a comfort that really made it okay. And he comforts her with the same comfort that God comforted him with. Do you get it? So he says, look, God made the first move with me. I was completely stuck. I was not going to make it. And God pulled me out and he forgave me. And God is not out to kill us. He's going to bless us. It's going to be okay. Now I'm making it up, but he had to have told her something like that for her to be able to grasp, you know what, God is not against me and he's not gonna kill me because I also committed adultery. Something in me committed sin too. So why is God not gonna kill me? So they, they get it. God is not gonna kill us, he's gonna make it, we're gonna make it because God says we will and they trust God. And so they can be intimate, and she does conceive, and she bears a son. And somebody, somebody calls him Solomon. There's a little ambiguity in here. Some of your margins have a conflict about who named him. Some of them say he called his name Solomon. And there's actually a note in the Masoretic text, the official Hebrew text, that says the text should be read, she called his name Solomon. So did he name him Solomon or did she? Here's what I think. Here's what 1 Chronicles 22.9 says. David is explaining the situation to Solomon and he's quoting what God said to him. And this is what God says. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. So I'm going to give you a son, David, and his name will be Peace or Peaceful. And I think that both David and Bathsheba agreed 
their son's name should be what God said it was going to be, peace. They both agreed what God agreed, but there's another name that God called him. Nathan sends word. The Lord loves that little baby. So he called his name Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. There's a baby with two names. And dad is an adulterer and a killer, and mom is an adulterer. They're both a bunch of sinners. What's the name of the baby? Peace, beloved of the Lord. You see, what God is doing is he's sending a sign that he's showing David and Bathsheba peace and love. That's grace. And then verse 26, David gets back to his job of being king. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I've taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. His, its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones. Now a talent is a hundred pounds. You wouldn't wear this thing all the time. And it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now Joab sends David kind of a snarky message. He says, man, we're just about done here. Why don't you show up and make an appearance or else they're going to name this thing after me when I get done with it. You know, it's kind of like, why don't you do your job? And so David does his job. He's getting back to what he's supposed to be doing under God. And really his job is to finish these wars, get rid of Israel's enemies, so the temple of God can be built in peace. So... God is the one who intervened and brought this issue to a resolution. So look, let's say that you've had a difficult week this week and you fell into some grievous sin. You know your natural instinct is to run from God. And probably being in church is the last place you'd want to be. Why should I go here? So I can get my face rubbed in it. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about going to church. There's been lots of times when I did not want to come. Back when I was a normal person before I became a pastor. <laughs> 
there's sometimes, you know, nowadays when I just, seriously? I'm not into it. I know that when I go and I'm not into it, those are the very best times. That's when God shows up and meets me and lets me know it's going to be okay. But, you know, it's, it, you get this feeling that God is going to kill me. If I face God, I'm going to die. Isn't that a terrible, awful feeling? But the point of this chapter is that God does not want to kill you. And in fact, he doesn't want to kill anybody. Isn't that fabulous? He does want to save us and restore us. And that's what grace is. Grace is God doing for you what you do not deserve. And so, you know, God will convict you about your sin. I'm aware that the devil is also condemning you about your sin. And those two things are different. Conviction and condemnation are two different things. Here's the difference. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, he will always draw you to Jesus to deal with it. That is the only way. The devil will condemn you to drive you away from God and say you are not worthy to come to God. Therefore, you should do yourself and the universe a favor and run away from God. That is a solution that doesn't work. So, when you feel that condemning and that burden and that weight, and I've done too much and I've blown it this time and I can never get right with God, that is not God. The Holy Spirit is always going to say, this is what you did. You need to come to Jesus. Come with me. And let's go to him and let's get this right. Because you cannot get out of your sin by yourself. You felt this loop where you loop in your sin and you can't get out of it. And you wish you could just step out of it and walk away and let's, let's do it again. But you're just like, I can't get out. I'm stuck. This is the very thing that we were looking at on Friday night. And if you haven't seen that video, go find it and look at it because it is a phenomenal exposition of what grace really is. At the right time, Christ died for us. And the reason why it was the right time is that we were helpless. And that makes it an absolutely strategic, beautiful time for God to show his love and his mercy. That you would know it's not based on anything that you do but it's because God loves you that he's going to save you. And so here's David, helpless. 
you know that God always comes to us first? Nobody is looking for God. You run into people all the time that say, oh, well, I'm spiritual, you know. Yeah, but are you looking for Jesus? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> That's the wrong place. You see, nobody's looking for God. He always comes to us first. That's how come you're a Christian. Did you want to be a Christian? No, get away from me. Point that Bible somewhere else before it goes off. So what are you doing here as a Christian? God came to you first, and he worked in your life, and here I am. I'm one of them now. So when you sin, God comes to you first, and he says, come on, let's come to Jesus and work this thing out. And it's right there that you can say to God, okay, I will. And that's where God begins to help you. And you know, when you confess your sins to God, he forgives you. Have you experienced that before? And how wonderful it is to know that forgiveness because you know it's different. You don't have this crushing weight of guilt and shame on you. And it's unbelievable how God can lift that and you know, I do not deserve this, but I'm experiencing this. And I'm not making this up. I would not let myself off the hook. So he's like, it's okay, forgive yourself, just walk on. Right, but you can't. And suddenly you're experiencing this relief, this it's going to be okay. You're going to make it. Now God forgives us the very same way he forgave David. By looking to Jesus on the cross and saying, he has paid for your sin. That's how God could say to David, I've taken away your sin. You're not going to die. He looks at Christ on the cross and he says, your sin is paid for. Go in peace. Now God is going to continue to discipline you because you're his daughter, you're his son, and he will do this so that you are assured of making it all the way to heaven. That's the proof that he's your father, that he disciplines you. The proof that you are a son and a daughter is that you accept that discipline and you say, yes. Whatever you have to do in my life so that I'm humble and obedient, I accept that. And I trust you to bring me through this. So you get to comfort yourself with this. God does not want to kill you. Isn't that good news today? And instead, he wants to save you. He's going to bring you out of your sin. He's going to keep you close to him. He restores you in grace. 
Now what you do is you take that comfort and you turn around and comfort somebody else. Just like David did with Bathsheba. You can do that now. And that is going to help somebody else to have peace with God and to be fruitful. The very things that you're learning now can comfort somebody else. So grace means that God is for you. Does everybody get that today? That God is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? This is the true grace of God. And as Peter says, stand firm in it. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you make that first move toward us. And we thank you for taking us out of our sin that we could never resolve on our own. We thank you for that. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place so that his death pays for our sin. And instead of being far from you, we want to be close. So keep us close by you. And make each one of us into that likeness and image of Christ. We trust you to do that. And we thank you, Lord, that we can expect good from you. And so, Lord, draw us all. I'm aware that there might be somebody on the live stream, somebody here who has not received Jesus. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.